welcome. Today on our Plotline series, we are revisiting the story of Peter Pan. Most of you probably know the Broadway musical, or perhaps the Disney animated version, or maybe one of the various live-action films produced through the years. The creator of the character, author J.M. Barry, actually wrote numerous stories and stage plays featuring Peter Pan, delivering the ultimate version in his 1911 novel, The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up. I'm here to read a summary so we can recall the plot points. Chad is here to enhance the presentation with a few timely sound effects. I'm ready, thanks. So, well, first, some instruction. As I'm reading, whenever I read Peter Pan, I want you to take this pan flute and play a few notes. This is not a pan flute, it's like a kazoo. Yes, well, we couldn't find a pan flute, so we play along, everyone. Uh, this is your pan flute. When I say Peter Pan, just play some notes. Let's practice. Peter Pan. Good. When I say the name Wendy, just uh, shake those wind chimes. Wendy. Nicely done. That's a gift. Yes. So when I say Tinkerbell, you will ring those bells. Tinkerbell. Excellent. Uh, next, when I refer to Tick-Tock the Crocodile, you just strike those claves together four times. Crocodile. Last but not yeah. least, when I say the word hook, you will take that metal hook and rake it down the surface of that chalkboard. No, I hate that sound. At least I hate that sound. Mm -hmm. I don't want Chad, to Chad, be a team player. We need to keep this moving along. When I say hook, rake the hook down the chalkboard. Uh, we'll just wait. I'll, I'll do it when you read through it. It's fine, I, I fine, fine. But when the time comes and I say it. Yeah, I'll, I'll do it. All right. <clears throat> Ready? Ready. Here we go. The story of Peter Pan begins in the London house of the Darling family. Mrs. Darling is tucking her children into bed when she learns that John, Michael, and their sister Wendy are often entertained at night by a flying boy named Peter Pan and his fairy companion, Tinkerbell. One night, Mrs. Darling wakes up to find that Peter Pan is indeed visiting the nursery. The boy is confronted by the family dog, Nana, and as he flies away, the protective canine traps his shadow in the room. That's a problem. A few nights later, while the darlings are off at a party, Peter Pan and Tinkerbell return looking for the shadow. He convinces Wendy and her brothers to fly with him and Tinkerbell to Neverland to meet the lost boys. When they arrive at the island, the group is attacked by pirates and separated in the confusion. Here we first encounter the clipper ship Jolly Rogers, Jolly Roger, which is piloted by a vain and vengeful buccaneer, he who shall not be named yet. And assisted by his loyal first mate, Mr. Smee, and a ragtag crew of violent scallywags, who are also very loyal to their leader, whose name we all know very well. The ship is relentlessly pursued by a hungry crocodile named Tick-Tock, whose belly contains an ominous ticking clock. Meanwhile, Tinkerbell has grown jealous of Wendy and convinces the Lost Boys to shoot her. She survives, and Peter Pan rushes in and mediates the tension. Before long, Wendy is serving as mother to the Lost Boys, cooking, cleaning, and mending their clothes. 
One night during story time, Peter Pan gets angry and argues with the darling children. Wendy decides to gather her siblings and the Lost Boys and go back to London. As they exit their underground house, the group is ambushed and taken to the pirate ship to stand trial before the... Villainous guy with one arm and a mustache and a long coat. Learning that Peter Pan is sleeping and vulnerable, the evil pirate leader sneaks into the house and poisons the boy's medicine. Peter Pan wakes up and Tinkerbell saves him by drinking the poison herself. The fairy nearly dies, but she's saved by the faithful clapping of children around the world. Peter Pan flies off to the Jolly Roger and sees Wendy and the boys being prepared to walk the plank. Suddenly they hear the ominous sound of the approaching crocodile. The frantic captain hides, and we learn that the ticking isn't actually the reptile at all. It's the trickster Peter Pan, who's making the clock sound. A fight ensues, and Wendy and the boys vanquish the pirate king, leaving only the one-armed pilot and Neverland's boy king facing off in an climactic conflict of sword and dagger. The duel results in the villain falling overboard and landing in the eager jaws of the hungry crocodile. Now, victorious, the darling children and Wendy take the lost boys back home to meet Mr. and Mrs. Darling, who offer to adopt all the boys. Each one is glad to join the family, except Peter Pan, who leaves Wendy and returns to Neverland, where Tinkerbell lives in the crocodile, and there Peter Pan vows never to grow up. (laughs) The book ends with an epilogue, detailing how Wendy... And her siblings grow into adulthood. Peter Pan remains a boy who periodically returns to London with Tinkerbell to recruit new companions for his magical visits to Neverland. Well, that was fun. But what a relief. We never had to use <laughs> this thing. I, yes, yes. Well, that's because I, I never said uh, Captain Hook. Yes, thank you. It's a gift. I, I appreciate that. It's uh, closest to being in the band I'm ever going to be. Again, when, when you're reading a good book or watching a good movie, there's certain plots that speak to a bigger plot. In fact, philosophers call this a meta narrative that there is a longing we all have that time is going someplace, that there's an overall purpose to our life. And like a good book, right? A good book goes somewhere. There's a culmination, there's a resolution. But there's a longing in all of us that our life has a purpose, has a plan, has what's called a meta-narrative. Now, this is a uniquely Christian idea that time is going someplace. Hinduism, for example, teaches that time is cyclical. It's not moving toward resolution. It just repeats itself over and over again. Postmodernism today rejects the idea that there's a meta-narrative of an overall purpose, and so does nihilism. There's no purpose. You live, you die, and that's it. Even uh, Buddhism and Hinduism have a similarity that even the ultimate culminax in Buddhism is that you become nothing. And so there isn't much resolution. And so all these different literature pieces, all these different philosophies speak to, do we have a plot to our life? Do we want a plot to our life? And, And what is that plot? And when you read a good piece of literature, it speaks to these longings and themes within you. Now C.S. Lewis knew that. C.S. Lewis was an 
atheist. He was a professor at Oxford, but he loved reading stories, myths, pieces of literature. One day he was hanging out with Tolkien, who was a follower of Jesus, and they were talking about his love, C.S. Lewis's love of Old Testament, I'm sorry, Old um, Greek myths. And how as he read these stories, it spoke to him. It, it had him long toward to be moved by the idea of a God who would sacrifice himself for others. And Tolkien one day said to him, he said, you realize the reason you're moved by these pieces of literature is because they speak to a grander plot line of how the world and the universe really works. They stayed up to like three o'clock one evening talking about this. And the next day he wrote in his journal these words as he described the experience. The reason was that in pagan stories, not the Bible, I was prepared to feel the myth as profound and suggestive of meanings beyond my grasp, even though I could not say in cold prose what it really meant, but it moved me. Now, the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference. It really happened. That there is a plot line of the universe woven into our heart that the Bible speaks to really happened in history through Jesus. But it's in a good book, it begins to echo or hint at or give longings toward this. And where Lewis came to know Jesus through literature initially, he felt a plot line speaking to him from these myths that called him to a higher purpose. And I want to propose that we all want a plot line. Some plot line that tells us who we are, where we've been, and where we're going. That's really, you can call it philosophy, you can call it religion, but ultimately it's a plot line. Who are we really? Where have we been? Where did we come from? And where are we going even when we die? These questions that literature speaks to, it's a longing, it's a, it's a tap on the shoulder to say, have you answered the bigger questions? Do you know what the plot of your life really is? And today as we look at the book Peter Pan, we're going to look at some comparisons between Peter Pan and the Bible. And some of the themes brought up by the author that give us proposals on this very thing. Who are you? Where did you come from? What happens when we die? We'll look at two duets. And the first duet is the idea of Peter Pan and Neverland. There's something about reading that piece of literature that speaks to, I long for the idea of going to a place where we never grow old and no one ever dies, a place of adventure, right? What you may not realize is that the writer of the book, J.M. Barry, the reason he wrote Peter Pan and the previous prequels to it is because when he was young, he lost his brother. His brother died at age five or six, and he was struck with grief. And as he began to wrestle with death the loss of a loved one, he began to like the idea that his brother was in a great place where he could have childhood adventures and never grow old. In fact, Peter Pan in his original writings is five or six years old. Disney aged him up to a preteen because it was his brother. And it was him coping with grief as he thought about the possibility that his brother was the Peter Pan in a world where he would never grow old and never die. We'll also find that he didn't get a lot of support from people helping him grieve, especially from his mom. If you read through Peter Pan, the mother wound that's woven through this thing is constantly, I long for a mom. I long for somebody to help me know how to deal with this, how to answer these bigger questions that I have, spiritual questions, questions about life and death. I'll give you three excerpts here and show just some of those themes actually do appear very clearly in the book. 
Here's what he says. Long ago, he said, I thought like you that my mother would always keep the window open for me. So I stayed away for moons and moons and moons. And then I flew back. But the windows had been barred. For mother had forgotten all about me. And there was another little boy sleeping in my bed. At first, Miss Darling did not know, but after thinking back into her childhood, she just remembered a Peter Pan who is said to have lived with fairies. There were odd stories about him, as when children died, like Barry's brother, he went, Peter Pan, went part of the way with them so that they should not be frightened. Another passage from the book. See, there were children who fall out of their preambulators when the nurse is looking the other way. If they are not claimed within seven days, they are sent far away to Neverland to defray expenses. Wendy and Peter. What fun it must be. Yes, said cunning Peter, but we are rather lonely. You see, we have no female companionship. Are there no other girls here? Oh, no, said Peter. Girls, you know, are much too clever to fall out of their premulators. So, if you don't know what a premulator is, here's what a premulator looks like. But this idea that his young brother fell out of his premulator, that he died young, and that he wanted Peter Pan to escort him to eternity. And that boys have a tendency to climb out of their premulators more than girls. And, and that's why they long for a, a mother figure, someone to speak to them, to help them, to help comfort them, to help nourish them. These were themes rolling through the book. That we all long for the answers. How do you wrestle with and cope with death? If you've ever seen the movie uh, Flatliners, they just redid it again recently, and they brought Michael Douglas back. And that was really about the same thing. What happens when we die? Now, Michael Douglas had a near-death experience, but notice how even though he has some evidence in one hand, the plot line he's been taught overrides it. Look what he says. I did hear angels. He's talking about a near-death experience. I did hear angels singing, saw a white light, and then relaxation came over me as I faced death. But despite the light and heavenly angels singing, Douglas, who overcame cancer in 2010, said he's not a believer in the afterlife. But I do think we have a mechanism in our brain that takes over and makes it easier to accept the inevitable uh, during the process of dying. It's like, you know, I know I want there to be a heaven. I know I want it to be more than just rotting to death. So I just got this biological mechanism that's my Peter Pan that helps me cope with the reality that I'm going to die forever. He's saying I need a plot line. And even though my heart longs for it, my biological mind longs to even invent one that makes it nicer, I had to come to reality, there's just nothing but death and dirt. So let me summarize maybe a, a doctorate level view of philosophy in two minutes. Here are the four views of all philosophies and all religions of what happens when you die. Four plot lines. Plot line number one. When you die, you rot to death. That's Michael Douglas' plot line. There's no Neverland. You're not going to see Grandma again. You're not going to see the person you loved again. They're gone. They're in the dirt. You'll hear folks like Richard, Hick- um, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchison say, Yeah, yeah, but it's not as bad as you think. Because if you realize you're going to rot to death, then it makes you want to live this life even more. Maybe. Another plot line is that you reincarnate into energy. This is what Hinduism teaches, pantheism teaches. But look at the ramifications to that. If you reincarnate into energy, then you are not you. Meaning you once were one thing, an animal, and then you were a, 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 a 
a stool, then you were a light, then you were a person, then you were a woman, then you were a man. But you're not eternal. You're not individual. You're not made purposely for one time to live forever somewhere. There's huge ramifications to that. And death becomes just a natural process of you becoming the next version of yourself. Third, you remain the same. The Egyptians taught that when you die, you step into the next life. That's why they were obsessed with their book of death. You step into the next life with the same problem. So you'll see pharaohs were, were in the, the sarcophagus with them and their tomb. They had their medicines. They had their, their glasses. They had their walkers. Because you're going to need that in the next life. Because you remain the same. Whatever ailments you have here, you bring into the next life. But Christianity offers a very unique plot line. Like Neverland, you resurrect to life. That you are you. And grandma was grandma. And there's a unique way God put that person together. And they're not going to be scattered into other people or other things. You're uniquely an individual. And you are designed to live forever somewhere. And God wants you to live forever with him. Resurrected. And heaven is not some Gnostic place like the Greeks and and Romans taught. Where your soul sort of flutters around like a cast for the friendly ghost. Now the, the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition is that heaven is real. It's a real place with real people with a real body. And so when your body dies, it's resurrected and put back together with your soul so you can experience a reality. And so Neverland, a place you never grow old and have adventures and creativity, is the vision the Bible speaks to that a piece of literature like Peter Pan says, don't you at least want it to be true? Yeah, I want it to be true. It says it this way in 1 Corinthians. Talking about resurrection. Now the Christ was the first to rise from the dead. We spoke about that last week for Easter. But it's just a deposit of things to come. He's the first fruit, the first of many resurrections for those who have fallen asleep or died. For since by man came death, by man also comes resurrection of the dead. In Adam we all died, but in Christ all shall be made alive again. Now notice all, you as an individual can live forever with him in a perfect place. That's why Jesus came, not to offer a code of ethics, not to offer religion or philosophy. He came to defeat death, to bring about resurrection. That longing for Neverland is not just a myth, it speaks to a true myth, a true longing to live forever somewhere. Our second duet, Captain Hook and Tinkerbell. What is the real problem in the world? Are we bad people who need to be better? Then most religions will take care of the problem. The Bible uniquely says that death is our primary problem. We have bodies who are dying, souls that are dying, spirits that are already dead. We think dead thoughts, we feel dead thoughts, and we want dead things. Things we know aren't even good for us. Things we told ourselves, I'll never do that again, and we keep doing it. It's not a lack of will, it's a dead will that we can't even conjure up or whip into shape. It needs to be made alive. And when you're reading something like Peter Pan, part of the adventure is always fighting death, right? Coming up against Captain Hook who's trying to kill you and the crocodile who's always after you. There are several literary scholars who have studied the book. And as they have, they've looked at some of the themes that are underlined in this book. They wrote in a, a book called The Second Star from the Right, two of the authors, what are some of the bigger themes that show that death is our biggest problem? Dr. Lester Friedman and Alison Covey developed unique takes on the story's darker edges. Friedman's interpretation is that the story's hungry crocodile as time, tick-tock, tick-tock, and Captain Hook as death, 
These are the two forces that the never-aging Peter Pan is obsessed with avoiding. That's why it rings true to us. The older you get, the more you feel the clock ticking. You have a brush with death or with cancer or with a medical condition and you suddenly realize how mortal you are. And you realize that death is your biggest problem. You got a lot of problems that are real, but mortality. And you hear the clock as you get older ticking against you. What happens? Who am I? What is my problem? How do I solve it? In her book, she references the previous book, the prequel to Peter Pan, which was called The Little Bird, where the author introduced uh, both Tinkerbell and Peter Pan. She says this, Katie's interpretation references The Little White Bird, in which Pan escapes aging only because he's already dead. Remember his, his brother. There is a sense that Neverland is the place that sick children go in their minds. His brother was very sick for a while, but some never get to come home. So again, we see a person wrestling with grief when he wrote the story of Peter Pan. He wants to know what happens when we die. And you can see the fear of death and wrestling with the ramification of death are in the book. Here's a classic piece between Shmi and Captain Hook. Hook barked, I want Peter Pan who first gave the brute its taste for me. He sat down on a large mushroom and now there was a quiver in his voice. Shmi, he said huskily. That crocodile have had me before this, but by a lucky chance it swallowed a clock which goes tick-tock inside it. And so before it can reach me, I hear the tick and the bolt. He laughed, ha, 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 but in a hollow way. Someday, said Shmi, the clock will run down, and then he'll get you. Hook wetted his dry lips. Aye, he said, and that's the fear that haunts me. And the Bible says that plot line that you read in the book is true of all of us. Death is haunting us and death is hunting us. And good works do not scare the grim reaper. There was only one person in history who came and actually defeated death in a historic way. And I want to hook my wagon to that person. But is death really a problem? Because Peter Pan references what the Bible says that death is a problem. But that is not the plot line of all religions and all philosophies. Here's a couple of views of death. These are all plot lines that come out of different religions. Plot one, death is normal and natural. Richard Dawkins says it this way, speaking of atheism. DNA neither knows nor cares and we dance to its music. Death has always been part of the process of evolution, how we got here, how we will be. We don't have to like it, but it's normal. It's normally just how the universe works. And yet you're holding the hand of someone you love who's dying. You can tell yourself this is normal and natural. You can sing the circle of life all you want. It doesn't feel very normal. It doesn't ring that this is the way it's supposed to be. You see a child dying. You don't say, well, in a random chance universe, stuff happens. No, inside you say it shouldn't be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. And what are you doing? You're comparing this world to some other world in your imagination. You imagine a world with no death. You imagine a world with no pain. You, you imagine it, but you've never seen it. And that is because there's a plot line that the Bible speaks to reality that God created a world with no death. And you're not going to be able to convince yourself, no matter how hard you try, that death is normal and natural. Second view is that death is the hero. 
Certainly in Hinduism this is the case. The circle of life is that the same universe and karma that crushes you on one end is the wheel that brings you up on the next end. The, the circle of death and rebirth is the hero that brings you to your next life. So embrace death because death is going to bring you to the next place. Thirdly, death is an illusion. Buddhism, if you remember the movie The Matrix, there is no spoon. Death is an illusion. You need to realize this whole world is a dream world. It doesn't really exist. And the more you enlighten yourself out of that reality, the more you're going to come to the, to the peace, the nirvana, that death and everything around you isn't really real. Or the Bible's view, which is death is the enemy. It's the ultimate problem. Physical death, we are dying, tick-tock. Soulish death, spiritual death. Now, Whatever you believe, don't naively think that religions teach the same thing. These are radical different views. And each is a plot line that you've got to process when you're dealing with death and grief and what life is and what happens when you die. Now, I obviously come to a very strong conclusion uh, that the fourth view is true. But there are many other religions. I would just say wrestle with the ramifications. If you're going to come to one of these views, wrestle with, come to peace with the ramifications of that view. And the implications of that view. The Bible says it this way. This is how clear it is. Death is the enemy. The last enemy. It's not normal. It's not natural. The enemy that will be destroyed is death. It was destroyed in one part when Jesus came at his crucifixion to make it so we could be resurrected. But there's a future uh, defeating of death coming. That in the future when he returns, he will restore his kingdom and no one will ever die physically again. It's a two-part death destruction. But death has always been the problem. And even when you become a follower in Jesus, you've still got a dead heart. And that dead heart thinks wrong things, believes dead things, wants dead things, and feels dead things. Toward yourself, toward others. And you don't need to try harder. You can try to last for about a week. You need a resurrection. God, I need to want the right things. Breathe life into my will. Breathe life into my feelings. I know I should not feel all these negative, depressive, hopeless, self-hatred thoughts. I've told myself I'm not going to do it again. I told myself I wouldn't want to drink that again or, 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 or smoke that again. But God, that's not about willpower. I've got a dead will. It's an enemy that needs to be defeated. Which speaks to the second part the Bible speaks to. Let's talk about Tinkerbell for a second. When you think of Tinkerbell, what do you think of? I think of this like fairy godmother, wonderful, angelic, perfect. Wouldn't it be great to be Tinkerbell, magic dust all over the place? Yet I put on the screen here that Tinkerbell tells us that inner envy and jealousy is our problem. Well, Chad, I don't know how you got that at Tinkerbell. Because I watched it, and she seems pretty fine. I, I've been down to, to Disney World. We've seen her walking around. She doesn't seem very jealous or, 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 or envious. She's sort of nice. Until you read the book. And you find out the way Disney sanitized Tinkerbell in the same way you and I sanitize ourselves. We don't want to admit that evil is not out there. It's in here. It's my inner jealousy. It's my envy. It's my self-centeredness. It's my impatience. It's my anger. And circumstances bring it out of me. Or do they? Don't we say when somebody makes us mad, we say to our husband or to our kids, you made me angry when you did this. I wouldn't be so irritated if that hadn't happened. We, We pretend that we are basically good people. That's our plot line. And these circumstances, situations, caused this to happen. Versus, no, they brought out something that was already broken in me. Tinkerbell from the book. 
she's flying over with Wendy in her hand, by the way. So she and Wendy are flying. She and Tinkerbell. They're just about to get to the island. There's a whole bunch of rocks down there. And Wendy is about to be thrown onto the rocks by Tinkerbell, who's trying to kill her. That's where we pick up. It would have been well for Wendy if at that moment she had dropped the hat. I don't know whether the idea came suddenly to Tink or whether she had planned it on that way. But she at once popped out of the hat and began to lure Wendy to her destruction. Tink was not all bad, or rather, she was all bad just now. But on the other hand, sometimes she was all good. Fairies have to be one thing or the other, because being so small, they unfortunately have room for only one feeling at a time. They are, however, allowed to change. Only it must be a complete change. At present, she was full of jealousy of Wendy. What she said in her lovely tinkle, Wendy could not, of course, understand. And I believe some of it was bad words. Huh, Tinkerbell's cussing Wendy out. But it sounded so kind. And she flew back and forward. Follow me, she said to Wendy, and all will be well. What else could poor Wendy do? She called to Peter and John and Michael and got only mocking echoes in reply. She did not yet know that Tink hated her with the fierce hatred of a very woman. And so bewildered and now staggered in her flight, she followed Tink to her doom. Chad, you ruined Peter Pan for me. (laughs) And yet you wrestle that and you go, oh my goodness, I've seen that version of myself. I can be really, really good. And the Bible says you've got the image of God on you. There's aspects of you that are brilliant and are are fantastic and are other-centered. Yet there's a dark side of you that's not caused by circumstance or situation. When you get jealous, you get enough pressure, you get enough stress, and what comes out of you, you're embarrassed about. And you read a plot line like Tinkerbell, and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm a lot more like Tinkerbell than I think. And yet there's a plot line that says, I'm basically a good person, basically a good person, basically a good person. Then you look at your life and you hear your kids talk to you, your parents talk to you, your teachers talk to you, your coach talk to you, and you're like, I'm not always that great of a person. I've got an inner brokenness in me that needs to be fixed. Which again, the problem of evil. There's at least three views. There's probably more than that, but I put three down. One is that evil are bad actions done anywhere. But they're just actions. I'm a good person. I just happen to do a bad thing that one time. But, but it's separated from me. It's not coming out of me. I just did something one time. It's an action. For others of us, evil is a bad force. It's out there. And every once in a while I get sucked into the dark side of the force. Oh, but thank goodness, I'm back to being the good version of me. Or thirdly, evil is a bad inclination in here. It's the inclination I have to do what's wrong, to to demand my own way. And the Bible has such a nuanced view. Somebody criticized me about six months ago because I I refer to alcoholism as a choice. They said, you need to realize it's a disease. The Bible actually says it's all the above. Because if it's not a choice, you don't have responsibility. But it's also a disease because we know people who struggle with a a habit, alcoholism or or, or overspending or, or, or overeating or overindulgence or, you know, being angry. And they've even said, you've even said to yourself, right? And you've heard them say, I'm not going to do this again. So it's like they want to choose the right thing, but they're not choosing the right thing. Because it's all the above. It is a choice. 
It is a disease. But the boss is also a power. A power comes over you. It says, oh, I can't believe I did it again. It's like, we even say that. Something came over me. And the Bible says that there's something so broken in us. And there's a world that there are, there are spiritual forces that come over you. And that's why it's so hard to do the right thing. Here's how James says it. James is speaking to the fact that, that these forces ignite something in us. He says, why do you quarrel and fight? Because it's your own inner desire. When, when you're tempted, how do you get tempted? Well, when you're tempted, you get drawn away by something in here. Your own desires are enticed. And when desire is conceived, it begins to grow. And it gives birth to sin, which means to miss the mark. And that begins to grow. And when it's full grown, it brings forth death. And we're back to the ultimate problem the Bible addresses. He's speaking to a group of people here in James. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do you not know they come from your desires? Something in you that's broken. I'm not getting what I want. That's ultimately what causes it. One of my best friends and I worked together for two or three years when I was down in Atlanta. And through a whole series of bad management and bad relationship I had with my boss, uh, I ended up getting a lateral transfer. I got, a, I got a new title. And so the person I trained became my boss. So I had been his boss, he'd been my boss. So we sat down to talk about the transition, and I'd felt very wronged, very, uh, just very wronged. I was very angry about it. So I sat down with my friend of mine, and I said, now you're my boss now, we're still going to accomplish the same things. Let me get this out in the open. I'm angry. And I'm jealous. And I actually really would like you to fail. It was an honest conversation. I said, and the reason I want you to fail is not because I don't like you. It's not because I don't want you to succeed. It's because I want to prove that it wasn't me that caused the problem last year. And if you fail, it'll show that the problem is up here, not in here. And we had a great conversation. And setting the tone of our friendship and our working relationship, I said, so... I want to say this out loud, so if you feel any of that coming out of me, you can call me on it. I don't want my jealousy, my need for revenge, my need to be vindicated to affect our ability to succeed. So I want to give you full permission to address that if you see it. And we worked together for the next couple of years. And having that freedom. But I could have said, no, because of the boss, that's the real problem. It was part of the problem, but it also brought out envy in me. It brought out the need to be justified in me. The problem was out there, but it was also in here. And the Bible allows you to look at yourself honestly and say, man, there's good in me without a doubt, but there is bad in me, and it's far worse than I can imagine. And the grace of God that forgives you allows you to bring out the worst side of yourself honestly. Because it's been forgiven, you can be more real with your own inner brokenness and your own inner, inner um, lostness. And that's why you need a plot line. See, the plot line tells you who you are. Are you all good, all bad, or a mix of the two? Where have you been? Are you an individual that lives forever? Are you just deposit in a small amount of time and you rot to death? And where are you going? Can you live in a place that people never die? Can you see grandma again? Can you see your favorite dog, your favorite bird again? Is there a place in the future that things can be restored? That's the question I want to end us on today. Which author are you trusting for your story? Donald Miller was not a believer in Jesus. He was in literature class and he got introduced to what's called narrative structure. You probably remember it from your literature classes. 
If you remember studying any particular movie or story, what makes the story good is it follows literature structure. There's an exposition of the characters. Then there's a rising action as things change and we're, we're building up to something. And then there's a climax, a crescendo in the story. And then there's falling action and ultimately resolution. So as you study literature, you, you say, is this a good story? Well, does it have exposition? Does it have rising action? Is there a crescendo? Is there a climax? Is, is there a resolution that things are put back together again? As Donald Miller studied this in literature class, he said, yeah, but why is that the structure? Why does that make a good story? Like, where do we get that? And I propose to you that we get that because that's what God hardwired in the universe. He designed a world where there was exposition. He created a world with no death and no pain and no brokenness and no betrayal. And something happened, and the rising action is, after that something happened in time, death spilled into all of us. And the rising action, we fight with ourselves, we fight with others, we fight with God. Things are not working the way it's supposed to. And it's building actually to a double crescendo. Crescendo one, where God came into the storyline to defeat death. But he's coming again for a final climax to defeat it once and for all physically. And the falling action is that he's going to come and restore the full implication of no more death and no more tears. And the resolution is that world that you've longed for with no death and no pain, it's coming. If the Bible's true, there's going to be a resolution. That world that once was will be the world that will be. And that literature structure that you and I read about and studied, why is that the structure? Except that it reflects a structure woven onto our hearts. As the Bible says it this way, God placed eternity, the exposition, into your heart, longing for resolution. And until you find a plot line that syncs up to the, how the world works, you're going to just be lost. Say, God, I just, I want it to be true. I want a plot line that makes sense. I want to know you're here. I want to know evil can have a purpose. I want to know what's really broken and how I can be fixed. We long for a plot line that corresponds to reality of our struggles. So maybe this morning you want to say, God, I need help. I don't believe most of what Chad just said, but I feel the longing for a plot line. Whose plot line are you trusting? I gave you a bunch of plot lines today. Which plot line will you trust with your story? Let me lead you into prayer. You just want to honestly say, God, I'm not sure. Or you might say, I believe it theoretically, but I don't apply it. God, God, I feel lost. You just want to say that. God, I feel lost. I feel lost and need comfort. I feel lost and need hope. God, I need you to help me sort out and think through who I really am. What I was really made for. And God, if this is true, what Chad's been talking about, will you whisper to me? Will you reach out to me? Because I don't want to be lost anymore. Amen. How did you feel that? Not just a great performance, which it was, but did you feel something and you're like, you know, there's something lost in me. Why do I lose my temper? I'm lost on what to do in this situation. I'm lost on how to handle the death or, or, or the, the diagnosis I had. Now, Jesus said he came, here's his purpose, to seek and save 
the lost. Not people who got their act together, but lost boys. In the same way that Peter Pan came into their world and took them to a world they'd always longed for. That's the story of the gospel of Jesus and what he did. And I hope you think about Peter Pan in a whole new light after today. I hope that we haven't ruined Tinkerbell for the rest of your life, but maybe so. (laughs) Begin to wrestle with these issues and ask God this week, God, I do feel lost and I need your help. We'll see you all next week as we continue with another plotline.